Just a quick update before we begin. Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its thousands of selections, and I use it all the time for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. In the spirit of transparency, we receive a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible, and whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep, forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 112 of History of the Marine Corps, Iceland. When Germany invaded Denmark in April 1940, Britain recognized the need to occupy Iceland to prevent a potential German attack. British forces quickly launched an invasion of the island, but their time there was cut short as they were called back to defend against Germany's Operation Sea Lion, a planned invasion of the United Kingdom. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill contacted President Roosevelt for assistance. In response, the U.S. sent Marines to Iceland five months before officially entering the war to help safeguard the island's strategic position. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When you hear about Marines during World War II, Iceland isn't a location that comes up often. This volcanic island, appropriately known as the Land of Fire and Ice, due to its icy glaciers and fiery volcanoes, didn't see much action during the Second World War. Yet it was a crucial strategic location for Allied forces. Many references I used for this episode emphasized Iceland's significant role in the war, echoing the quote by Winston Churchill in his book, The Grand Alliance. Quote, Whoever possesses Iceland holds a pistol firmly pointed at England, America, and Canada. Unquote. Even before the onset of World War II, Germany had set its sights on Iceland. The Nazi leadership considered Iceland a, quote, pure and brave Aryan nation, unquote. Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS and a prominent party member, idolized the Vikings and incorporated references to Viking culture in the propaganda he crafted. In 1939, Dr. Werner Gerlach was dispatched to the island as a German consul. His mission was to sway Iceland towards their cause of racial superiority. Germany's engagement with Iceland did not escape the attention of the British government they became increasingly apprehensive about the close relations between the two nations, and multiple efforts were made to persuade Iceland to align with the Allied forces. But when World War II erupted, Iceland decided to remain neutral. As the war escalated and extended beyond European borders, Iceland found itself in a difficult position. They were a small nation, without a dedicated military which made them highly vulnerable if either of the two major superpowers decided to knock at their door. In response to this challenge, 
Icelandic police undertook training and assumed the responsibility of defending the nation. Here's an interesting fact. Today, Iceland maintains a Coast Guard to monitor its waters and airspace, but it continues to operate without a standing army. Iceland is the only member of NATO without a military, highlighting the significance of its strategic location. When the foreign minister of Iceland gave a speech at the NATO signing in 1949, he stated, quote, My people are unarmed, and have been unarmed since the days of our Viking forefathers. We neither have nor can have an army, but our country is, under certain circumstances, of vital importance for the safety of the North Atlantic area. Unquote. The war's initial months didn't cause much of a headache for Iceland. There was a lot of activity near their shores, as German and British naval and aviation forces duked it out. But the island's primary focus was on stopping ships from entering its waters. But everything would change on April 9, 1940. When World War II broke out, Iceland was a relatively new sovereign state, but it was still ruled by the monarch of Denmark. They relied on Denmark for a few items, including foreign affairs and national defense. In April, German infantry and a motorized division launched an assault on Denmark. The Danish forces were outnumbered, ill-equipped, and their population was insufficient to withstand a superior army for any length of time. Germany presented Denmark with an ultimatum, a swift surrender in exchange for retaining its civilian governance or face the bombing of Copenhagen, the capital city. The Danish government agreed to these terms, resulting in the fall of Denmark in about six hours. This military operation was one of the shortest during World War II. If you want to hear more details about why Germany decided to invade Denmark, I talk about it in episode 100 the second part of the World War II introduction. With Denmark under German control, Iceland was officially without help. The British government, apprehensive about the possibility of Iceland being the next target, presumed that Germany might launch another invasion. While Germany showed interest in Iceland prior to their invasion of Denmark, they didn't have actual plans to invade the island. In May 1940, Winston Churchill briefed the war cabinet and advocated for the deployment of troops to Iceland. The island maintained neutrality in the war, and an occupation would be perceived as an invasion. Churchill argued to the war cabinet that engaging in negotiations with Iceland would only grant Germany time to respond and complicate any potential occupation in the future. Britain's objective was to take Reykjavik and several other cities on the west coast. Once these initial targets were secured, a force of 700 British Royal Marines would proceed northward to seize another strategically significant city. The British invasion commenced on May 8th. Getting to the island was more of a challenge than the invasion itself. Stan Foreman, a petty officer in the Royal Navy, who served aboard the HMS Berwick during the raid, recalled, quote, In May 1940, we transported Royal Marines to Iceland, and the island was occupied on the 10th to prevent the occupation by a German force. A number of German civilians and technicians were made prisoners and transported back to the United Kingdom. Very rough seas were encountered on passage to Iceland, and most of the Marines cluttered in gangways and mess decks throughout the ship. 
prostrate with sickness. One unfortunate Marine committed suicide, unquote. When the British Royal Marines landed, they received very little resistance. In fact, some of the Icelandic officials even helped them out by dispersing the crowds. The most opposition during the landing came from a man who took a rifle from a Marine, shoved his cigarette in it, gave it back to him and said, quote, be careful with it. By the 19th, the British occupied seven cities, establishing control over Iceland. 4,000 soldiers from Canada were called in to replace the Royal Marines, who were then recalled to prepare for the defense against Operation Sea Lion, Germany's planned invasion of the United Kingdom. In December 1940, a meeting took place between the Icelandic Minister of Foreign Affairs and the U.S. Consul General. During this meeting, the minister proposed the idea of the United States declaring Iceland as part of the region encompassed by the Monroe Doctrine. We covered the Monroe Doctrine multiple times in previous episodes, and those of you who have been around for a while are probably familiar with it. But in essence, the Monroe Doctrine was a policy announced by President James Monroe in December 1823. The policy opposed European colonialism in North and South America. It claimed that any involvement in the politics of nations in the Americas would be regarded as a hostile act against the United States. If you're interested in more details as well as how it impacted international relations, check out the Banana Wars episodes. This proposal was presented to the U.S. Secretary of State, who ultimately turned it down. But the notion of the United States occupying Iceland wasn't taken off the table. The Secretary of State replied to the consul that the U.S. was more than likely not going to occupy the island, but he recommended that he should neither encourage nor discourage further approaches. By late spring, Britain was stuck between a rock and a hard place. They needed the troops stationed in Iceland to return home and help protect their country against German attacks. Churchill asked President Roosevelt to relieve his men. Roosevelt agreed to this request, but he insisted that the Icelandic government formally invite the United States, so there was no confusion on the authority to station troops in a neutral territory. In anticipation of the invite, the president ordered the army to prepare to relieve British troops on June 4th. Although the army had one and a half million men at the time, most of them were newly enlisted who were brought in through the Selective Service. The Selective Service Act, passed in 1940, established the United States' first peacetime draft. The act restricted the deployment of these men beyond the Western Hemisphere, unless they explicitly volunteered for service. Equipment was also in short supply, and the Army needed more experienced soldiers to train the new troops. Sending them to Iceland would create a shortage of equipment that new soldiers could train with. Facing the need for immediate action, the president turned to the Marines. The following day, he ordered the chief of naval operations, Admiral Stark, to have a Marine brigade ready to deploy in 15 days. The Corps was arguably in a worse condition than the Army. It was severely under strength, and they were in the process of organizing and training two new divisions, one on each coast. But being unprepared never stopped us before and the Commandant designated Colonel Leo Hermel's six Marines for, quote, temporary ashore duty beyond the seas, unquote. 
The Canadian forces occupied Iceland until June 1941, when the responsibility was handed over to the United States. At that time, the U.S. was still considered a neutral nation, and Pearl Harbor had not yet been attacked. But there was a growing sense that war with Japan was becoming increasingly likely. The 2nd Marine Division, stationed at Camp Elliott in San Diego, had diligently prepared for a potential amphibious war against Japan in the Pacific for several months. Under the leadership of Colonel Hermel, the 2nd, 6th, and 8th Marine Regiments, along with the 10th Marine Artillery, swiftly mobilized. Within a week of receiving their orders, Hermel's men were loaded onto ships and sailed from San Diego. The Marine units assigned to Iceland were the Headquarter Platoon, the Brigade Band, 6th Marines, the 5th Defense Battalion, 2nd Battalion 10th Marines, Alpha Company 2nd Tank Battalion, Alpha Company 2nd Medical Battalion, Charlie Company 1st Engineer Battalion, 1st Platoon Alpha Company 2nd Service Battalion, 3rd Platoon 1st Scout Company, and a Chemical Platoon. Over 4,000 Marines embarked on their journey, escorted by battleships, cruisers, and a fleet of 10 destroyers. Brigadier General John Marston assumed command of the operation in Iceland. When he left for the island from Charleston, South Carolina, he was given concise and very clear orders. Quote, In cooperation with the British garrison, defend Iceland against hostile attack. Unquote. As the Marines were en route, Churchill sent a letter to the president, expressing his optimism, stating, quote, I am much encouraged by your Marines taking over that cold place, and I hope that once the first installment has arrived, you will give full publicity to it. It would give us hope to face the long haul that lies ahead. Unquote. On July 7th, the Marines successfully landed in Iceland, and everyone prepared for retaliation from Germany. It was unknown at the time, but Hitler had no intention of involving the United States in the war. On the very day General Marston departed South Carolina, Germany invaded Russia in the largest land offensive in human history. Millions of combatants fought during this six-month battle, which is mind-blowing. Provoking the United States into war would have been disastrous for Germany, since they lacked the resources to simultaneously take on the U.S., Russia, and Europe. Hitler's submarine commanders were given orders to refrain from targeting American shipping, even though it had been publicly announced that the U.S. Navy vessels were protecting British and Canadian ships headed for Iceland. He declared, quote, that there would be no accounting for the submarine commander who sank an American vessel by mistake, unquote. But lacking this crucial information, the U.S. proceeded with their plan. Marines were expected to debark and unload the ships quickly to minimize the threat of attack from Germany, specifically their submarines. For those of you who have participated in an amphibious landing, even for training, it's a lot of work. In the 18th century, Marines would simply grab their sword, their muskets, and go. But in the modern era, the process is far more complex. Planning and executing the efficient transportation and storage of resources needed to defend Iceland was a task in and of itself. But the perceived threat from a German attack caused significant pressure to get the brigade and its equipment unloaded as quickly as possible and get the convoy back to the States. 
I know this is going to upset a lot of grunts who like to pick on Pogues, but General Pershing, the commander of the American Expeditionary Force on the Western Front during World War I, summed it up perfectly. Infantry wins battles. Logistics wins wars. Another challenge Marines faced was the lack of a sizable local population available to help out, placing the burden squarely on the Marines' shoulders. The Marines on Iceland became a colossal working party. To add to the unique situation, they were heading into the season of the midnight sun, which resulted in 24 hours of daylight. The extra sunlight turned out to be a plus, depending on who you ask, and Marines could work throughout the night. Cargo vessels were dispatched in pairs to the docks, while the troops and lighter equipment were directed to a pebbled beach near the city. By the 12th, all supplies and equipment were successfully unloaded and the convoy returned to the United States. As soon as the Marines landed, they began scouting to get a better understanding of their surroundings. Iceland is a mountainous volcanic region. It's rather barren. Centuries before World War II, deforestation had taken a toll, with 95% of Iceland's forests being cut down. When the Marines arrived, the remaining trees were at most 8 to 10 feet tall, and vegetation was scarce. The volcanic activity also left many craters on the island, and there are some areas with lava actively flowing. To give you an idea of how barren it is, the Icelandic Forest Service has implemented an afforestation plan, and as of 2015, trees only covered 2% of Iceland. Before the departure of the British forces, Major General Henry Osborne Curtis, a British Army officer, presented the Marines with the 49th Polar Bear Shoulder Patch and suggested that they incorporate it into their uniforms. General Marston agreed and approved the adoption of the patch by the 1st Marine Brigade. Reflecting on the cooperation between the two forces, General Marston later commented, quote, The mutual cooperation directive worked, to the entire satisfaction of the British commander and the brigade. The British complied with our request, and we complied with theirs. It was as simple as that. A British commander, less sympathetic than General Curtis, might have upset the apple cart, but under that talented officer, no incident of conflict occurred. Unquote. During the following months, Marines remained dedicated to building and maintaining roads, constructing defenses, unloading and loading cargo ships, and building the notorious Neeson huts. Initially conceived by the British, these huts were essentially smaller versions of the Quonset hut. Marston described them as, quote, an elongated igloo covered with corrugated iron roofing and lined with beaver board, unquote. Each hut was capable of housing 14 men. Marines were able to combine multiple huts to create more expansive structures, such as chow halls or headquarter buildings. The 5th Defense Battalion strategically positioned their machine guns and artillery in the anti-aircraft positions previously established by the British. Throughout their deployment, they dedicated themselves to their area of expertise, which primarily involved manning the guns and engaging in continuous training and drills. The 6th Marines weren't as fortunate and mainly functioned as a working party. In the report to General Marston in August, the unit referred to themselves as, quote, a labor regiment, unquote. 
their primary responsibility revolved around various laborious tasks and support duties rather than specialized combat activities. Marines weren't supposed to be a permanent defense for Iceland. The initial plan involved them establishing a presence in Iceland until the army could provide the necessary resources to take over. Scuttlebutt at the time assumed the Marines would be relieved in September, but as time passed, it became clear that Devil Dogs would be in Iceland much longer than initially anticipated. About 1,000 soldiers were sent to Iceland at the beginning of August, and they were immediately put under Marston's command. By September, another brigade was supposed to show up and relieve the Marines. However, there were some issues with the second echelon deploying. In addition to the Army's lack of volunteers due to the Selective Service Act, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill issued a joint statement on August 14th, named the Atlantic Charter. This document sets goals for a post-war world. It called for international cooperation, disarmament, and self-governance. Since the United States was not officially engaged in the war, these new regulations prevented soldiers from being garrisoned outside the country. This agreement posed a significant obstacle to sending troops to relieve the Marines stationed in Iceland. In 1953, Maurice Matloff and Edwin Snell, who were part of the Office of the Chief of Military History for the Department of the Army, released a comprehensive report titled Strategic Planning for Coalition Warfare, 1941-1942. This document briefly discussed the struggle with the Atlantic Charter and its impact on sending troops to Iceland. Quote, It proved extremely difficult to set up an army force to relieve the Marines. The passage of legislation in August 1941, permitting the retention and service of the selectees, reserve officers, and the National Guardsmen still left the problem of restriction on territorial service, a problem which was to remain with the Army until Pearl Harbor brought a declaration of war. Unquote. If you'd like to explore this 500-page document further, it will be available on the episode's webpage. General Marston faced another challenge when it came to seniority in Iceland. Major General Charles Bonesteel commanded the Army Brigade slated to arrive. Marston would take a back seat upon his arrival. General George C. Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, also declared that Bonesteel would have complete administrative and operational control over all troops in Iceland, including the Marines. This decision didn't sit well. The Army's administrative and disciplinary system differed wildly from how Marines and the Navy typically do business. Commandant Holcomb strongly objected to this proposal and expressed his concerns in a letter to Admiral Stark, the Chief of Naval Operations. On September 4th, Holcomb stated, quote, The proposed change will not necessitate a complete revision of this plan, but would introduce many administrative difficulties with no corresponding advantages insofar as command relations are concerned. A complete change of the administrative system would again be required when the 1st Marine Brigade is detached from the Army. Unquote. The next day, Holcomb followed up with another letter highlighting the plan's potential consequences. Quote, in view of the existing situation in Iceland and the probable nature of other operations to be conducted by the Navy elsewhere, 
The proposed plan has many undesirable ramifications. If carried to its logical conclusion, it will mean, at best, frequently shifting Marine units from the Navy to the Army and back again, with much administrative grief. It will probably change our concept of command relations and joint operations. Unquote. But Holcomb's concerns fell on deaf ears, and on September 24th, Marines were transferred to the Army's command. Holcomb received orders to report to the Secretary of War regarding all matters related to the Marine Brigade. But despite Holcomb's warnings, the situation in Iceland wasn't as dire as he had anticipated. In a letter to the Assistant Commandant, General Marston made the case sound more like an inconvenience than a catastrophe. Quote, They have a tremendous amount of paperwork which the Marine Corps seems able to avoid. The barrage of force orders coming out of staff sections is appalling. Of course we are getting along all right, but it will be months before we are oriented in the new direction. If the future develops another situation, similar to that of this brigade in Iceland, I hope that you will be able to have the transfer deferred within at least two months' notice so that the officers concerned can get themselves oriented in preparation for the jump." How does the amount of paperwork or force orders from staff sections compare between the Marine Corps and the Army today? It's pretty clear that it has increased significantly in the Marine Corps. While some level of bureaucracy is necessary to command forces of this magnitude, at what point is there a diminishing return? I don't have an answer, but it's interesting to think about. When Bonesteel took command, he recognized the efforts of the self-proclaimed labor regiment with the Letter of Appreciation, an honor that feels meaningful at the time of receiving it, but often ends up stored away in an attic for decades. Bonesteel offered his, quote, sincere thanks for the splendid assistance given in preparing the various campsites and in numerous other ways before and during our arrival in Iceland. The amount of hard and extended labor involved is fully recognized and deeply appreciated. Unquote. As winter drew near, the daylight shortened, significantly affecting the training Marines received on the island. There was less light, and Marines had to focus their time on camp maintenance and insulating buildings for the cold weather. Soon the Marines went from 24 hours of daylight to just four. When Pearl Harbor was attacked, Marines gathered in the Neeson huts and turned into the radio for the news. They were chomping at the bit to get revenge and wanted to get off the frozen island and head to the Pacific. I can somewhat relate to this feeling. When the World Trade Center was attacked on September 11th, I was in a training exercise with the 11th Marines. I want to say it was 29 Palms during Exercise Steel Rain, but this was over 20 years ago, so my memory might be a little off but I do remember heading to the command tent just in time to watch the second plane crash into the tower. I'll never forget that feeling of anger, helplessness, and fear hitting me all at once. We were supposed to head back home a few days later, but training was extended to prevent civilians from witnessing a convoy on the highway and assuming we were heading to war. This gave us more time to stew in our own juices. Remember, this was 2001, so information wasn't as available as it is today, and we received most of our information from the Lance Corporal Underground, which was essentially gossip from lower ranks. 
For what it's worth, none of that scuttlebutt was true. But I have to assume that the Marines in Iceland were going through the exact same thing. As the declaration of war was made against Japan, the value of a Marine brigade fighting in the Pacific, instead of defending Iceland, became more apparent. With the United States officially at war, the Selective Service Act and Atlantic Charter were no longer obstacles for the Army. The Navy pushed the Army to send troops to relieve the Marines. 8,000 soldiers were supposed to leave New York on January 15th, but due to the demands of the war effort, they were diverted to support other locations. 3-6 was the only unit that was relieved in January. They left on the 31st and reached New York two weeks later. On March 8th, at 10.10 in the morning, the last Marines left Iceland, and Marston closed his command post on the island. Two hours later, the Marines were removed from Army Command and returned to the Navy's authority. Despite the differences in how the Army and Marines do business, they worked together well in Iceland. In a final letter to Marston, Bonesteel gave kudos to the Marines under his command. Quote, Every officer and enlisted man gave his wholehearted support and cooperation to our efforts, to a much greater extent than mere compliance with instructions implied. Unquote. On March 25th, the Marines arrived in New York, and each unit was dispatched to different locations. The 5th Defense Battalion was sent to Paris Island, while the 6th Marines were all sent to Pendleton. All supporting units were sent back to their original organizations throughout the Corps. Although the Marines' time in Iceland may not have been filled with intense action, they were one of the strongest units in the Marine Corps. Many Marines served in isolated posts away from the main camp, highlighting the crucial role of small unit leadership in achieving success. The constant challenges forced NCOs and company-grade officers to find solutions themselves which strengthened their leadership skills and instilled confidence in their junior Marines. They also saw very little rotation, so the Marines sent to Iceland stayed with each other until they departed. This continuity allowed Marston and his staff to foster strong teamwork skills and develop a powerful esprit de corps among the ranks. When the Marines returned to the States, almost all of them were promoted and those in leadership roles were selected to lead newly activated commands. Many Marines from the 6th were chosen to support new Raider and Parachute battalions for the duration of the war. At its peak, the island hosted 30,000 Allied troops, with about 15% of that number being Marines. Allied forces made up half of the population in Iceland, and definitely left a mark on the small island. There were over 250 children born in Iceland to Allied fathers. These children became part of a unique identity tied to the circumstances of their birth. These kids were given a special name, which roughly translates to children of the situation. Additionally, over 300 Icelandic women chose to marry foreign soldiers, which stirred controversy and many were shunned for their decision. They were unjustly accused of prostitution, and betraying their country. Even today, the repercussions of these events can still be seen. Many of the children born during this period were given the last name Hansen, an Icelandic surname typically used when the father's identity is unknown. In 2018, 
7,000 U.S. troops participating in a NATO training exercise in Norway pulled into Reykjavik for a quick stop. Surprisingly, it was a pleasant experience. A local bartender stated, quote, The Americans were very polite and friendly and caused no problems at all. It looked like they were having a lot of fun. It was fun for us too, unquote. The only incident was a lance corporal who wrongfully misappropriated supplies from a first aid kit. I'm not sure what he stole, but he was demoted to PFC for it. Thanks for listening. This episode's audiobook is 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. In a recent episode, I recommended another book by Greene, The Laws of Human Nature, which I found fascinating. I was intrigued by this book, so I decided to explore another of his works, The 48 Laws of Power. This book delves into historical strategies and principles for gaining and maintaining power in various social and political settings. As the title suggests, Green provides 48 laws drawn from historical figures. I'll admit, I wasn't feeling this book when I started it. There were a few rules that seemed to advocate burning bridges and manipulating others for personal gain. For example, one of the laws is posing as a friend while acting as a spy to gather information discreetly, or instilling fear and uncertainty to maintain control over people's actions and loyalty. But as I got further into the book, I started to appreciate the historical examples provided for each law. I'm pretty happy with my lot in life. I'm not looking to take over the world, so I took the more manipulative laws and started to watch for people practicing these behaviors. I focused on the rules that resonated with my principles and started incorporating them in my everyday life. So for example, I found the law of do not build fortresses to protect yourself particularly relevant. It emphasizes the importance of adaptability and forming alliances rather than isolating yourself. I also embrace the idea of win through actions, never through argument, which encourages demonstrating abilities and success rather than engaging in fruitless debates. Visit audibletrial.com slash marine history for a free copy of this audiobook and a free 30-day trial. If you like what you're hearing, Check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and tell us why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.